Sometimes we just get that feeling like somebody's looking at us. Or even a worse feeling, like somebody's following us. You can just feel it in your gut. Your hairs rise on the back of your head. Maybe there's some place that you go to regularly that one day you notice a person, a vehicle, something you've noticed before that shouldn't be there. In fact, we're way beyond coincidence now. Maybe there's situations where you feel like you could be in danger or are in danger. It's just someplace new, too many people. And you want to know how can I identify that threat? Well, we're going to talk about different tips and techniques and things that are used by clandestine intelligence officers and certain members of the military for what's called surveillance detection. We'll take those practices and principles and apply them to everyday life, especially for criminal activity. Because a lot of individuals that surveil on their own do it the same way every time. It doesn't matter if it's for legal or illegal means. We're going to find out how to identify those threats and situations, how to get out of them safely, and to keep ourselves and our loved ones from being hurt. Surveillance detection is something that happens over time. What it is is a process by which we don't let somebody know that we're being surveilled, that we know they're there. We try to identify them and then do something that would disrupt their plans to make sure that that attack or activity doesn't happen. And the reason it's important is most, if not all, attacks require some planning. Now, granted, there are situations that are targets of opportunity, but they're usually repeated situations where somebody's been there before, so that counts as some planning, or they just see it and come up with something very quickly, which is very dangerous in most situations. So we're going to determine how to detect these different events and acts to disrupt those plans and move on with our lives without being in danger. And to make sure there's no confusion, many people have heard of a term called counter-surveillance, and that's not the same as surveillance detection. They're two different things, two different pieces of the same pie. Surveillance detection is the process we use to detect or discover that some sort of surveillance is happening, whereas counter-surveillance are the measures we take to stop the surveillance or negate them from happening in the first place. And sometimes counter-surveillance measures end with actual surveillance back on the original surveiller. So surveillance detection is about discovery. Counter-surveillance is about stopping. Another key difference is surveillance detection is an ongoing activity that somebody has proactively put in place while they're going about their day doing whatever it is they're doing. Whereas counter-surveillance doesn't have to be reactionary. It can be done before surveillance even happens by putting measures in place to either disrupt or deny that possibility of being surveilled in the first place. Now, if you're wondering why could this be important to me? Well, one thing to understand is that terrorist activity and even a mugging tend to follow a very distinct process that's identical. An attack cycle is what it is. The first is target selection. Whether a terrorist group's targeting a specific government or an individual mugger is targeting somebody walking down the street, they choose their targets, and then they plan what they're going to do. Whether it's years of planning or moments, some sort of plan is put into place. Then they deploy, which means they actually go do this activity from beginning to end, and then they escape the situation, or at least they try to, and if they escape the situation, they exploit. Now, whereas a terrorist might create a video to recruit some people, the exploitation of a criminal might just be go and hawk your jewelry at the local pawn shop. There's also a process you can use to determine if you're even under surveillance in the first place. 
One acronym is called TED, although there are many others, but this one's pretty easy for most people. Um, it's a simple acronym meaning time, environment, distance, and demeanor. What it means is if you were to see another person over time, which could be hours, it could be days, depends on the situation, you also see them in different environments. So yeah, you might see a stranger at a coffee shop every day, but that's the only place you see them. That's probably not a big deal. But you see them in a different environment. And then you see them over distance, which doesn't count public transportation because depending on where you're at, a lot of people can get on a bus and get on and off at the same place. But you're seeing them over distance, different parts of the city, maybe different parts of the country, depending on your situation. And most importantly, their demeanor. This is where situation of awareness kicks in. Does their demeanor even make sense? Does their clothing make sense? Is it suitable for the environment they're in? Are they standing there looking at you or at a situation or somebody taking notes where it doesn't seem like anybody would be taking notes repeatedly? Or are they taking photographs or videoing something that doesn't even make sense or doesn't seem appealing? If all those factors apply, then you or somebody is probably under some sort of surveillance. Now, that doesn't mean it's an intelligence organization. It could just be the bill collectors. But that's definitely a sign of surveillance. One thing to point out is real surveillance isn't necessarily as sexy as in the movies. In fact, it's very rare. So the cool part about movies is you get this one person and they tend to follow somebody for days or hours. And some movies they're seen, some movies they're not. They follow them all over the place. And we get to see this interaction and the things they do. Now, while I wouldn't go on for several hours, that's a very common way for a criminal to attack somebody. They're going to follow them, see what they do, or try to use other means to box them into what's called a choke point in order to attack them and do whatever they need to do. This bigger, more professional stuff, like federal agency levels, intelligence agencies, or trained professionals, while it's possible that there could be people on the ground following them in close proximity as part of a larger operation, it's very unlikely. What is actually done is the surveillance team will identify suitable observation points. So think about the boring movies or surveillance where you got the guy on the rooftop or someone over sitting on a park bench and they're watching somebody go by or they're watching a specific building and they go in and those are never as fun in the movies, but they're more realistic. Use these observation points where maybe you've got something like say on a rooftop in a city, for example, where an observer is watching a person walk down, say, a four or five block area that they're known to travel every day that has been determined. It's why we plan the surveillance this way. And they're identifying that they're doing the same thing as they always do. What they're doing is making sure they're sticking to the normal plan, tracking their movement by time, and seeing if there's any deviation to what is typically normal for them. And then they have to determine if it would be a normal deviation or not. The real time and effort is put into critical locations, which might be a coffee shop this person goes to, or their place of business, or just a store that they visit, some place they go to regularly, they spend a little bit amount of time in, that a surveillance team can put the effort into surveilling from inside and out to determine whatever it is they're there to do. The reason I point this out is most of the time you're going to be on the move, walking somewhere, driving somewhere, you get that feeling somebody's following you. Sometimes it's when you're sitting in a location. But most people that are under threat that realize something's about to happen, that missed all the signs, they're typically walking or in an exposed environment. But don't forget those critical locations, those places you visit regularly. Those are good opportunities to actually conduct some counter surveillance, but also to perform surveillance detection. And those are the places most likely where something bad would happen or shortly thereafter when you leave. So those are when you really got to be on your toes if you think you're under surveillance. Something else to consider is that somebody who is following you or want something from you that may seem nefarious or may just be a bill collector, 
They don't typically just watch. Sometimes they will interact or speak with you. That is not uncommon. Whether it's a criminal, a bill collector, or a spy, it's not uncommon for somebody to interact with the target. This is important because we get those situations where we run into somebody we just met that morning. It's always in the romantic comedy. Well, the thing is, if you meet somebody and then you run into them on accident, that's what the first time really is. It's probably an accident. The second time, you could even write that off as coincidence. But the third time, that's when you start questioning what's going on. Because if this was a working environment for me, I would call that a hostile action. A couple simple things to look for. The first one most people actually see all the time but don't realize what it is. That's the time you get that person staring at you too much, too long, and too hard. Sometimes people say, hey, take a picture in the movies to be funny. But when somebody's staring at you like that, you only got to ask yourself a quick question. Are other people looking at me too? Because if several people are looking at you, there's probably something going on. Something silly, something you missed, maybe your zipper's down. Maybe there's just some smoking hot chicken way too revealing of clothes and nobody can take their eyes off them. But most of the time, if somebody is staring at you too hard and too long, that's a big sign that something's happening. Another simple one to identify is called pacing. You actually see it a lot in like teen movies where the guy wants to talk to the girl or the girl wants to talk to the guy, but they don't get too close. Sometimes you see it in movies where people are being followed. And all it simply is, using the idea of somebody just walking down the street, is a surveilling person tends to stay the same distance, move at the same pace. And if they're walking, sometimes in the same step. Or if they're in a store and you move two feet, they move two feet. And it looks weird and out of place. And the thing is, everybody does it. It's actually human nature. If they get too involved and aren't maintaining their own situational awareness, they can start pacing their target. I've seen it in training where guys with tons of ability and skill start to lose sight of their situational awareness and they start pacing their target. What's even more amazing about human psychology is the less people that are around, the more likely that is to happen and for you to notice it. Kind of like in the movies, The Dark Alley, The Dark Night. Some person's walking down the street, doing whatever they're doing, and then they hear those footsteps, and then they start running, the footsteps start running. Crazy as it sounds, that actually can happen. So you got to look out for pacing. Who's maintaining the same distance from you all the time, especially inside a building? Are these the same people that are making eye contact with you? If somebody is making eye contact with you, pay attention to who they are. Use your situational awareness. What do they look like? What are they wearing? And determine if they're going to end up pacing you or following you later. Another thing to consider when identifying people is what you can see from a distance versus what you can see up close. From a distance, it might be hard to see scars or tattoos or even the color of their shoes, but we can see whether it's long sleeve or short sleeve or maybe a jacket, maybe it's dark, maybe it's light. The reason this is important is you want to train your brain that when something is closer to you, you want to try to pick out those distinguishing features that would be harder to see at a distance so that if you're able to see them at a distance, say they're running away after an attack, then you can pick up on those features that are easier to see at a distance. Plus, you'd be amazed what you can recall that you don't consciously think about. That's why you want to skip the obvious and go for something that's a little more specific. So when they're close, you want to look for those things that are not only unique to the individual, but not easily changed. For example, hair color, facial hair, tattoos, and scars are the big one. These are things that either can't be changed, or if they can be changed, it's going to take a little while and a little privacy somewhere. From there, you would start from the bottom up. 
the most likely thing to be changed will be a hat or eyeglasses is what we start from the bottom. The last thing somebody's going to change usually will be their shoes, followed by whatever they're wearing on their lower body, whether it's a skirt or a pair of pants, followed by a shirt, then the jacket, then jewelry. Then it'll be things that are accessorized like the hat and the sunglasses. Practice that yourself and see what you can identify in somebody from the bottom up, especially somebody you know. If there's somebody at home and you know they're going to change before they go out, memorize or recognize what they have from the bottom up and see what they do or don't change and how often that people maintain a very simple routine and make it easier for you to identify them. In the same manner, we want to look at vehicles a similar way. What kind of identifying features are on the vehicle? Now, if it's very unique and you know cars, that's not an issue. But for those who don't know cars that well, you want to identify, of course, the colors, especially if they're unique colors. While making models important, you want to look at things that you might recognize. Were the rims black or were they shiny? Are there any dents on the vehicle? Did it have one exhaust or two? Those are things a lot of people don't look at. Another thing is if you can see the license plate, first thing you should do if you predominantly stay in one area, meaning you're pretty much in your state all the time and you don't travel a lot for business, is get familiar with two license plate. One is a standard government issue license plate. Know what it looks like. The second one is what a place look like for your state. Start with the most obvious one, whatever the recent design is. Go to your DMV, your DOL website. Look at the older versions that might be on an older car. There are veterans plates. Those tend to be very similar in every state. But the reason you want to get familiar with your own license plates in your own state is that's what you're most likely going to see. That way, when you have a different plate that stands out, you can recognize and identify it. So you may not know what state it's from, but you can say, look, I know it's not one of the state license plates that we have. Whether it's the old, new, the government, or one of our plates that might have, say, a bronze star or, say, veteran on it. I know that it was brown or that it was yellow or that it had something on there. I just know it wasn't one of these, and that can actually help narrow it down. Something else that can help you identify a vehicle, especially an SUV or truck, does it have a tow hitch on there? Not all of them do. After that, identify where the antenna is on the vehicle or if it stood out as being something unique. After that, we work to the more obvious things. Make, model, common colors, whether or not the windows were tinted, was there four doors or two, things like that. Now, in the event you're in a situation or altercation that's outside of, say, being surveilled where there is a vehicle involved or you witnessed a vehicle and you're going to assist in some sort of investigation with law enforcement, if you're carrying a smartphone, one of the things some people don't think about is what they can look for right away. So when you see that vehicle, try to remember and write down the biggest details you saw. And then as soon as you can, get on your phone, go to the Internet and start looking for trucks or sedans, Ford or cars, whatever it was. See if you can find a picture that's pretty close to it. That actually helps a lot of people that aren't familiar with certain types of vehicles or certain brands or makes or models, whatever you want to call them. And then they can go look at the cops and say, look, here's a picture. I'm telling you, it was a truck just like this. It just here's what was different. That's where you can take advantage of the knowledge you have and take advantage of the technology you have available to you in order to identify something. It's no different in the world of espionage. Every time we think we see somebody or there's a picture that comes up and it's on a system where facial recognition either isn't available, doesn't work. It's just like sitting in a police station, at least in the TV shows, and you go through the scrapbook looking at photos. That is not fun, but you use what's available to you. Now let's look at some simple detection methods that you can use if you think you're being followed. And I'm going to start by telling you some things you should not do. 
Now, when it comes to people that are spies doing the spy thing out in a foreign country and even the isolated few that might be operating independently or at least for a short amount of time, one of the things they don't do is literally keep their head on a swivel. Keeping your head on a swivel is a statement meant to mean that you're paying attention or you should be paying attention. And if you're ever in a conversation about situational awareness and somebody uses that term but can't explain it or they said you should be constantly looking around, definitely somebody you should not listen to. In the world of espionage, that's how you get killed. The spy game is not friendly, and the last thing that you do is let the person know that you're aware they're there or that you're looking for them or that they did something that stood out. Not only does that give them information to go back and later on think about stuff they did to change their patterns or how they did things, but that could also make them move forward and execute whatever plan they're going to do right away. Think about a criminal. When looking at all types of crime, generally speaking, most crimes are moments in time that just happen. They're opportunities that come across them. If you're in a situation where you're being followed and you think somebody's going to do something, remember back I said that a lot of times when we let people know that we're there, we start to get more scared or that fear starts to kick in is when we're actually not in a safer place or what we think is safer. And then we get around crowds and then we start acting like we're a little more safe, but we actually aren't. Just like an animal, the person that's following you, if they smell that fear, they could choose to act right then and there. It's unlikely that they're going to turn and run. And now that is possible. And there are people that have the ability to stand their ground, turn around and approach somebody they're being followed, that have the confidence and the wherewithal to deal with that situation. They know they can fight. They know they can disarm people. They know if they have a weapon, they know how to use it. But that is very few people. So even before you were to do that, if you wanted to, you want to take the steps to ensure that you can identify the person or at least verify if you are in fact being followed now to put this in perspective in the spy game if you're actually in a town say you're in a city and you think you're being followed and you're going to walk around town to determine it actually takes several hours and i'm not saying you need to do that but in that world this is a several hour process of walking what's called a surveillance detection route or sdr and it takes several hours to uh, verify for sure and to try to throw these people off and to actually turn it into a counter-surveillance operation. Another thing you might hear, and this is a huge sign somebody doesn't know what they're talking about or they've read an old spy novel and are not even thinking through what they're saying or they watch too many movies, is they say, oh, you should stop in front of a window, not an actual mirror, but a window that has a reflection that you usually can't see the reflection unless it's dark and then you can see somebody across the street. I challenge you to find said window that's not a mirror and think about the physical distance across any normal street, even in a small town. And when you're looking in there and you're seeing reflections, what are you really seeing? How clear is it? How much can you identify? And the answer is not a whole lot. In today's world of technology, people up the ante and try to say, oh, you should use your phone. Well, I can understand if you're going to do like possibly a selfie for some reason, if you can make it make sense, and then really quickly try to identify any person in that photo and then look for them later, I can get that. But when a person says to you, take your phone where it's off and you're not using the camera function, and then hold it up like you're trying to get signal or look at it like you can't tell what's going on, you're not going to see the reflection. That's not going to work. That's not how that does. So that's kind of a foolish move and actually can be dangerous. So a legitimate thing you can do is imagine that you're walking down the street in most situations. Now you apply this to whatever environment, but let's look at a typical city street. We got so many blocks. We know we have intersections. Most of them probably have stoplights. Maybe there's a tree, maybe there's a bench. And we have a lot of doors going into businesses, usually stores. 
So what you do is a very simple thing. As you think about the fact you're being followed, this person's 180 degrees behind your vision, directly behind you, roughly speaking. In this situation, what you're going to do is something called the pause and turn. You want to do this in a place that it makes sense. And if you want a good long view, you're going to pause and turn in the direction to cross the street. Just as long as it makes sense, you would cross there safely. Plus, if it's at an intersection, you're going to wait for light that's a little bit longer. And now what was directly behind you is to your 90 degrees. And at that point, you can use peripheral vision or even slightly just shift and change without making it too obvious. And you can have a better look down there. Plus, you can see, are you being paced? Did somebody else stop? And where they stop, does it even make sense? The other thing you can do is go into the store, the other 90 degrees. Now, while you're not really paused that long to make that turn, you definitely can be in the store however long you want just as long as it's a situation that would make sense. This can give you an opportunity to actually look straight back, see does that person follow you in? Do they walk in front of the windows and continue down? Do they actually look in the store and see if you're looking at them? So be careful of that. So don't just stare straight out the window. Get more to 45 or 90 or definitely in a place that we talked about those observation points where you can see that critical location without being observed by the person who might be following you. Plus, now you're indoors, you're in a place of business, people don't want to come in there and cause problems. No matter what the reason is, somebody could be surveilling or following, the last thing they want is any legal entanglements, deals with law enforcement. They don't want an altercation if they can avoid it, so if they're going to be an altercation, they try to take it over rapidly. And they definitely don't want to have the cops called or have other parties involved. That's why they're probably not going to follow you in that business, or at least not cause a problem if they do follow you in that business. Another thing we can do is a complete 180 turn, and this is how you would do it. Let's use the same situation. We're walking down the street. I think I'm being followed. You want to give yourself a few seconds past a place that you could go in. Again, we'll use the example of a store, somewhere like that, walking down the street. You give yourself a few seconds. You want to give yourself five to eight seconds, at least five seconds. Five seconds might be too long, but any more than eight is definitely too long, but when you're walking and trying to observe and look like you're not looking for somebody, five seconds goes by fast. So five seconds or so, give or take a couple, and you can just kind of go through the motions of like, oh crap, where am I? I walked by my place, whatever. You can turn around and do that complete 180. At this point, while you're kind of looking and like, yep, that's where I'm going, and then you just continue walking normally, you bought yourself a few seconds to look back 180 as well as 20 to 45 degrees off to the side across the street to identify and get a good visual on who you think might be following you. And in most situations, most people aren't even sure if they're being followed or who is following them, if there's more than one person. So what do you do? Get a good look at everybody. Again, from the bottom up, things that they're probably not going to change or cannot change easily. You also may notice that person stop and pause. If you turn around, somebody stops and pause for a second and they're not sure what to do, that's the person you want to pay attention to because they're in shock that you even turned around. The reason I also mentioned looking across the street is a lot of people in the world I come from will have multiple people following you, but they actually do it from across the street and make it look as though they're not directly behind you and they can get a good visual on you and it makes it a little less easy for you to identify them because you tend to think directly behind you. There's also places that do classes now on types of surveillance and stuff, and some of them teach those techniques, or you can find them online. So you never know what somebody actually thinks they know, but make sure you get a good view across the street as well. Now, these simply can work in vehicles as two, just a little bit differently. 
One of the great things about vehicles is if you want to do some technique like this, of course, you get the 90 degree turn at any intersection. You get the opportunity to pause, look in your mirrors, see what people are doing. When you make those turns, whether left or right, left, at least in the United States, being a little easier because you're on the driver's side, on the left side, that can buy you the opportunity to go ahead and turn your head just to look that way if you want. Yeah, you might be giving it away, but it's going to be very difficult to use your peripheral vision while operating a vehicle. And if you turn the opposite way where your side you're driving on is completely away from the turn, you can still look or have somebody else in the vehicle look. Now, if you look at the 180 situation, it's a lot easier on a road, especially if there's a median or a place you can do a U-turn that doesn't have a stoplight, or you can just go down and turn around and come back. So we're driving down the road, and one of the things you want to do is identify places that make sense you might need to go. Very easy ones, gas stations, but there's other ones as well. But a gas station is a place you wouldn't be at too long. You just drive down the road. You see it. You think you're being followed. You find a reason to do that U-turn. Now, of course, you can pull off onto another road and make a couple turns to come back. A little quicker and easier the U-turn. You get a longer look at the person and usually very close. And you can see their reactions a lot easier. You do that U-turn and you go into that place. Then when you leave that place... You continue going the way you were when you pulled into it, so opposite your original direction. Then you do another UE again and see if the person's following you. Now you can do this by pulling off side streets and then using uh, you know your turn signals and get back to the intersection. It takes a little longer. Typically, if a person's following you, it'll be really obvious at that point because they'll completely follow you all the way around, but it's unlikely. Even a person who doesn't know what you're doing, who's not well-trained, is going to drive around a bit or try to do circle around the block and see where you're going. And they're not going to follow you that closely. And somebody who's very well trained definitely isn't going to follow you off like that. Then when you make your stop, this gives you an opportunity to call somebody or do whatever you need to do to identify who that person is and report them if you think you're being followed. If you think this is something bigger, like you're being followed by a spy, you're probably not. But it could be law enforcement. And if the law enforcement is surveilling you, there's probably a good reason for it. <laughs> not saying law enforcement doesn't make mistakes, but if you really think you've identified them, the hardest part you're going to have is evading them in a vehicle because just like I told you, they do it in teams with vehicles. There's multiple teams, multiple vehicles. They do handoffs. They pass people off. And you're never going to know, even if you identify one, you're not going to know where all the vehicles are or how many there are. Now, one thing to mention, too, is I said earlier, reflections windows, bad idea. Try it yourself. You'll see what I mean. But mirrors can work well. There's still plenty of stores that have kind of those bulbous, round, half-round mirrors in the corners, especially in uh, retail stores sometimes, where they can see around corners. Get an idea where those are if you go into a place and you think you're being followed, because one, somebody's following you, will probably look for them too. So you'll see them looking up at you, or you'll see them not recognize that's there. And if they don't see it, they'll be watching typically the end of the aisle you either went in or might be coming out of so that they can follow you. So then you just simply say, oh, okay, they're following me. They don't see this mirror. They're looking this way, the way I would probably exit. So that's fine. Identify where another one of those mirrors are. Go ahead and exit that way and give them the opportunity to follow you. Then go to another spot, see the mirror in the new place. Are they still sitting there and doing the same thing? And you're like, oh, yeah, this guy's following me. This is beyond coincidence now because of what he's watching. So that's been two times right there. So even though we said you might want to go for three, no problem. From there, you can walk, you can go to the manager's office or walk out to your vehicle. You have plenty of options what you can do where you will see him the third time. And in most stores, even when they have these, there's cameras. So if you have to get law enforcement involved, 
there's going to be a record. The biggest thing to remember is unless you have to do it, you should never let somebody know you realize that they're following you or surveilling you. One of the biggest reasons why is typically when we let them know we're being followed is right when we've got tired of seeing whatever and they will always associate that to what they did in the last minute or two is where they screwed up and you're giving them an opportunity to learn to do things better. So you don't want to do that. The other reason is if you don't let them know, they'll always try to wonder and they'll never figure out exactly how they got found out. And that's good because you're not teaching them anything. Additionally, you're not freaking out. Adrenaline's not kicking in. You're not reacting or making stupid decisions or making a mistake or possibly getting yourself in an altercation because you don't want to make assumptions based on what you see of this person and what they are capable of doing. Remember always that being followed typically is going to be a criminal act. Most crimes are opportunities, and these people are possibly capable of causing you great harm. And if you're with somebody else that's a loved one, you then have to protect them while dealing with the situation. So the best thing you can do is move on, get to a safe place, report them, or do whatever you need to do. Now, something else you can do, though, is you can have prepared locations or places you're comfortable with. Or just keep in mind what the business you're going to pause and turn into has available. So things that make sense to stay a while in are like cafes, coffee shops, bookstores. If you have a prepared location like that or one near you and that's where you choose to go in, no problem. You can be there for a while. You can move around there freely and you can really throw people off. Not to mention it forces them to sit there and try to watch you from the outside longer, which can give away what they're actually doing. And when you have a location like this, the reason a prepared one is better is you visited it, you're familiar with it, you know your escape routes, you know your evasion routes, you know what's available in there for weapons, is you can establish the baseline of that location. What is normal in this place? So if there's a park bench outside and nobody ever sits in it and there's never any birds around and then some guy's sitting in it, pay attention to that, that stands out. So if you think you're being followed and the person follows you in or they don't follow you in, what do they do and what do you can see? Are their actions consistent with the baseline of that location? If they're not, and you've met all the other requirements for the simple TED cycle of time, environment, distance, and demeanor, you're probably being followed. So while I know this is short, I try to put a lot of information in there that you can go back and listen to with relative ease without having to search for it too much. Keep your situational awareness, pay attention to your surroundings, look for those features if they're very close that cannot be changed or can be changed easily like the scars, the tattoos or hair color, facial hair, things like that. Then and on from the bottom up, clothing that is least likely to be changed in a hurry. Then you'll find it's easier to actually recall things you didn't think you were paying attention to or if you get to see them move away or you're moving away and have more time, then you can take notice of the easier things to change you can see from a distance. You should practice those pause and turns, especially in a vehicle as well as that 180 degree situation. Look for the mirrors that are in locations. Look for security cameras and make sure you're in view of a security camera or can get that person to walk in front of a security camera. Always be aware of your exits to escape and remember exits don't have to be marked nor do they have to be doors. Every place, especially public places on the outside where there's no doors or no walls, have ways that you can escape, whether you're on foot or on vehicle, and you need to assess those and figure out where they go, how do I get there, how do I not make it look obvious. So once again, hopefully this has given you a few points, a few things you can use for surveillance detection to practice on your own. We'll cover more of this in the future.
my intent for this show is to cover a few subjects and give you a few things that you can use without being overwhelming. You can practice on your own, then add on to it later. Also, if you've been listening to the show, I'm trying to do these in a way that each thing I give you ties into one or more of the podcasts before that you can go back and reference and learn some of these skills and help keep yourself and your family safe. So make sure to practice these things. Don't just listen to them and say, hey, that's a great idea. Put them into motion. See how you can use them yourself. If you want a great way to practice all this stuff just for fun, just to get out of the house, go pick a hotel for a weekend. Whether you're by yourself, you're with the wife, the kids, or whatever. Find a hotel, a place you can go to overnight or for a couple of nights. Somewhere new in your city, a place you don't go a lot. Try to practice these skills. See if people are following you. Try to follow each other. Look for all the exits in the location. Check the routes in the hotel. How many steps is it? Go through everything that we've talked about in the podcast before and create your own training environment. And that might be a good way for you to see how easy this is to do and how quickly you can learn it as second nature. Thank you for listening and we'll have another podcast here for you in just a few days.